1: So what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. I want to tell you about a new podcast called Brains On. It's a top-rated podcast that's driven by kids. They submit questions like why do cats purr, how does the internet get to us, and do we all see the same colors? They then interview real scientists and experts to find those answers. It's fun and entertaining for both kids and adults. And in June, they're launching a special series on cars that's perfect for listening around the road. So check it out. Subscribe to Brains On, now on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. science story
2: huh? NYU uh,
1: I, I felt, felt I right
0: I so and I just happy. thought well I figured
1: it wow. out I feel it was that
0: tall. golden moment because science was on my side
1: hi everyone I'm Ben Lilly and welcome to the story collider where we bring you true personal stories about science This week, we'll bring you stories of early childhood development, including one story from an expert in early childhood development, and another from someone who was a child at the time of their story. Our first story this week is from Amy Brown. It was recorded in September 2016 at the British Science Festival in Swansea, United Kingdom, and our show produced in partnership with the British Science Association.
2: So, last night, about 10 o'clock, I was sat on the sofa, drinking a glass of champagne, because this is how all good stories start, I think. The reason for the champagne was it was my eight-year-old daughter's birthday. Finally, she'd had her presents. We'd got her into bed. It was all all right. I could finally sit down and start thinking about my talk for today. So I had my glass of champagne in one hand, and in the other hand, I had my phone, and I was Googling stuff because I just wanted to check that I had things right. Because when I was asked to do this, I thought, I've got a brilliant idea of what I could talk about. And I was thinking about this idea of life imitating art, and art imitating life, but actually swapping that for science. So life imitating science, science imitating life. This kind of becomes more apparent when I tell you a bit about myself. I'm a psychologist by background. I work in public health at the moment. But I've always explored why we do what we do, why we make the choices. And the people around me, the people I work with, it's it's quite novel, I think, working with human behaviour, because unlike a lot of other disciplines, people often come to it quite late in life. They've often had experiences, or they've had a different career, and something has happened to them, which has made them want to go into research. So for example, perhaps they had a parent who had dementia and they'd had a really tough time trying to get the right services for them. So I had colleagues who had come into academia to do that research, to try and give those people a voice, to try and highlight the need for those services. Now, as a psychologist by background, I had particular interests around developmental psychology, which was all about babies and how they developed, And I also liked health psychology and clinical psychology, which was very much about well-being and health. So anxiety, depression, your identity, how you are a healthy person. So these were my interests, and I combined them. I did my undergraduate degree. I went into teaching, teaching psychology students, teaching childhood studies students. And there I was, the the academic, you know, the academic there, teaching these things. I would teach about what it was like to give birth, without having given birth myself, um, what it was like to be a mother, what it was like to become a mother. And I would do these lectures, you know, this is how your baby should sleep, this is what your baby should eat, Um, as kind of like the ultimate, you know, expert, shall we say, in how to look after your child, and how to be a mother, Because we all know, don't we, you can just go and read the research articles and they'll tell you what this is really like. And I would see my colleagues and they would be researching their own experiences, perhaps about their child with autism or about how their parent had had dementia. And I was thinking, isn't isn't that valuable? Isn't that lovely? They can really see the insight. And I was missing that. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be lovely once I've had a baby, I'll be able to see, you know, how experience really matches my science. So, go back 10 years, i just had my first baby. And it was like any experience of becoming a mother. What you said to people wasn't necessarily what it was like at all. I mean, when you have a baby, there is this strange, almost public groping of you in a way, in that people think you can walk down the street and when you're pregnant, they'll literally touch you, which is strange in itself. I mean, try it with someone who's not pregnant. Can I rub your stomach? No, no, don't. Um, But they seem to kind of ask all about your life. You go to Tesco's and you've got your baby in the buggy and you're completely sleep deprived and someone will start asking you questions. The favorite one is always, is he good? Which means, is he sleeping? No, um, but you don't tell them that. You say, oh yes, he's, he's so good. Yes, he's sleeping because you lie because a good mother has a sleeping baby. You, you don't want to not be a good mother. And the favorite one is when complete strangers come up to you in Tescas and say, aren't you lucky? This is the best thing that will ever happen to you. What's the other one? Cherish those precious moments. And, hmm, yes, (laughs) put them aside. So fast forward a few months again. And I always used a nod, by the way. Yes, yes, best thing that's ever happened. Wonderful, wonderful. So I went back to work and I went back to my lecturing. And of course, absolutely everything had changed. I looked at my slides and I thought, Wow. (laughs) This is something completely different. And one of the more amusing examples is that I used to teach about how, you know, you don't need all these expensive toys for babies. You can give them some pots and pans and they'll bang about with them and they don't need these expensive things. And of course, then I had absolutely every expensive gadget it was. But the part I really want to focus on, and I mean, obviously so much has happened in the last 10 years, but the part I really want to focus on was when I was talking about those lectures about becoming a mother and about maternal well-being and about how mothers really felt. And I got my slides up about postnatal depression and I'd read them out and I'd say, well, you know, 15% of mothers have postnatal depression. But it suggested that perhaps the figures are higher because... Not every woman tells somebody that she had postnatal depression. And the little quirk there was that I was that woman with postnatal depression. I had had a hideous time after the birth. And I'd kind of kept going, kept going. And I'd come back and seen these slides. And it was like some kind of surreal reality. And I was reading them and thinking, I've not told a soul. Well, I told my health visitor, and I'd literally told about two friends. Otherwise, I'd absolutely, completely buried it. And suddenly, I was that academic who was plunged into her own research experience, but kind of the other way round. I'd become almost the science I taught, and it was a such a strange experience. So we, we'd read the slides, you know, all these women not telling anybody, and I'd say, Well, people don't tell their, their doctor because they're worried that someone would take the baby away. And I'd know really deep inside me that that's why I wouldn't tell anybody, because if somebody knew what a terrible mother I was, then somebody would come and take my baby, wouldn't they? But don't let on to the students, just, just keep smiling here, you know, just keep swimming. And then we, we'd get to the, the next slide. And we talk about the symptoms of postnatal depression. And if you don't know too much about it, it's kind of, it has its similarities with depression. But actually, there are some quite specific symptoms. The media would make you think that postnatal depression, you don't want to be a mother, you don't love your baby, you don't want them. But actually, often with postnatal depression, your baby is the most important thing in the world to you. But you think you're not good enough for them. And two of the main symptoms, one of the main symptoms was anxiety. And there I was, people always used to say to me, you're a superwoman, I don't know how you do this. You're doing your PhD, you've got a tiny baby. You're really coping, aren't you? And I'd say, yes, it's easy. Yeah, you know, you just carry on. Whilst inside, I was that person who, midway around my Tesco shop, would have to abandon my shop and run from the store. Because I couldn't take it anymore, I was so anxious, the world was closing in. And they talk about symptoms of complete sadness, feeling like you've had a loss. And I did the sadness. It was a feeling that you just could not stop crying because you'd lost something and you couldn't figure out what it was. And the worst bit was when someone was nice to you. And I always remember the particular breakdown I had in Marks and Spencers by the cheese because um, if you're going to have a breakdown, you know, this is not just any breakdown. This is a Marks and Spencer's breakdown. And every time I see a Marks and Spencer's advert. But what happened was the public were doing their usual thing of, you know, coming over to you and admiring the baby because they ignore you once you've had the baby. It's, it's all about them, not you. So this, this older couple came over to me, and, and the man was playing with my, my son in his pram. And the woman turned to me and she said... What about you? How are you feeling? It's really tough, isn't it? And I just, collapsed. I just burst into tears, and I was sobbing by the cheese in Marks and Spencers. And this poor woman, because I ran away from her, and I really hope one day I meet her again say, so I'm sorry. But the irony of it, that there I was, as the academic, telling everybody about postnatal depression, when, when deep inside, that was me. And it was this just strange colliding of worlds, you know, my academic knowledge and then my real knowledge, it was almost like a film script written out for me. One more example um, was when I t- turned to the next slide and they were talking about predictors of postnatal depression. You know, in psychology, you have the checklists. If you go on Google, you can diagnose yourself with absolutely anything you like, really, with these checklists. But you'd read down the checklist and you'd be like, oh, dear, this is me. Yes, keep going. And one of the, the ones was uh, partner support. And 10 years on about, we, we joke about this. It's, it's in all my lectures. But uh, I remember going to the GP finally and then talking about it and her saying, look, you really need some support from your partner. You really, really need this, or you're going to end up really, really ill. So I talked to my husband, and I said, look, I really, really need the support. He said, right, I'll, I'll, I'll book a week off work. Great. He booked the week off work, and, you know, the science stereotyping slightly, but women like to talk about things and men like to do practical things to help. Well, he booked the week off work and he built me a patio. Um, And when I said to him, you know, why why are you building a patio? He said, because it would make you happy. (laughs) And to be fair, I've been divorced a while and the patio's still there, so, you know, it's there. But it's... It's a very, (laughs) quite shiny too, and he's not underneath it before you ask. Um, (laughs) But it's this this world, and when Rosie asked me, do you want to take part in this event? I kind of had a thought, I think, and I thought, well, what am I going to talk about? And I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll stand up in a room full of people and tell them about the postnatal depression I had 10 years ago, because I've never told anybody. Ten years of academic teaching, twice a year, every year I do a session on postnatal depression. Nobody would have a clue. And it's this idea that we never know really what's going on underneath the surface. And this idea just of the science mimicking life and life mimicking science and it all being so intertwined and the idea that if you speak to most academics, they often really have a personal story underneath. It isn't necessarily so personal as this in they actually end up you know, in their research, but what led them there, what has become of them because of it and the experiences that they have. So not wanting to leave, end it on such a kind of miserable note as depression, obviously things are fine now, honestly. Um, <laughs> I'm now doing lots of work around supporting women with postnatal depression. We're doing a great project where we use creativity, poetry, creative writing, to get women to actually talk about their experiences and get their voice out there and say, this is honestly how I feel. This is who I am. I don't need to hide it. And that in itself is going to be turned into research papers, which I'll present in the lectures. And it seems to be this sort of ongoing cycle of life and science and science and life and motherhood can continually create itself. But whenever I meet a scientist now, I think, What got you here? What's your personal story? And I think certainly tonight, I'm not going to be the only one who's going to tell you something like this. And thank you for letting me talk to you, really.
1: (laughs) That was Amy Brown. Amy is an associate professor in child public health at Swansea University, where she researches experiences of becoming a mother, particularly around how babies are fed. She has published widely on how social, cultural, and psychological barriers can damage breastfeeding and subsequently maternal well-being. She also has three children of her own. Stay tuned for the next story after this message from our sponsor. I want to tell you about an app that, crazily enough, is designed to get you to stop looking at your phone and go out into the real world. It's called Detour. Imagine listening to one of your favorite podcast hosts take you on a walk through their favorite neighborhood in the world and telling you all its secrets. That's what a Detour is, an immersive audio story that knows where you are. They have 150 different audio walks, from Radiolab to Ken Burns, from a leader of San Francisco's gay rights movement to a Broadway star in New York. And they weave through some of the most fascinating neighborhoods around the world. Plus, when you walk with your friends, you can sync your audio so you all hear the same thing at the same time. Detour is a magical way to explore places with people who know them best. Go to detour.com slash story to get your first audio walk free. That's detour.com slash story. Welcome back. Our second story today is from Cassie Saladay. It was recorded in October 2016 at The Mint in Los Angeles, California.
0: So I have a lot of fears in life. One being public speaking. (laughs) Two, the weeping angels from Doctor Who. (laughs) And probably probably the silliest of all of them is that I'm afraid of being called stupid. Doesn't matter if I know the person or not, I am just so afraid after anything I say, that six little word is gonna leave their mouth and come and slap me in the face. (laughs) And you know, there's way cooler fears to have in life. So I thought back, I was like, where did this even start? And for me, emotion is like a time machine that if I can remember how I felt in a certain moment, I can remember you know, incredible details. So I thought back and narrowed it down to a series of events that happened to me in first grade when I was six years old. To give you some insight into my six year old world, here are some of the most important things to me. Seeing long mathematical equations fill a college world notebook, I would get these huge (laughs) math books from the library and copy all these math problems, and then I would flip to the back of the book and write you know copy all the answers. I had no idea what I was doing, what it meant. I just knew it looked so good on paper <laughs> and I would show it off to my teachers and friends, just waiting for that beautiful compliment, "Oh, you are so smart!" I also loved carrying around my dad's encyclopedias i when my parents would take me to our tiny, tiny library in southern Illinois, smaller than this room, I kid you not, I'd get their biggest book. And I don't mean big as in length of pages, but it literally looked like this book was walking down the street when I carried it. I wish that every day was Starlab, Lab and that my name was Cassiopeia. I had a big imagination and a big love for how smart things looked. So you can imagine when I got into the gifted program in first grade, I was ecstatic. I was so excited and happy. <laughs> Some of the prerequisites for getting in this, you know, gifted class was you—you you don't pee or poop your pants anymore. You—you <laughs> you only speak when you're spoken to, and you had to be smart, the top of your class, A.K.A. me. I didn't know how to tie my shoes yet, but that was totally me. There were five of us in this class, and every day at 1.45 p.m., the gifted teacher, Miss Beth, would come and escort us from our normal first grade class and into a small room with no windows. And I loved this because we were leaving those other first graders behind in the normal class, and we were going to the special gifted class. I felt like the other four students in this class were my best friends and that we were, we were bonding over our growing brains. <laughs> Those other students were just learning how to like, write a sentence and what that meant. But one day in gifted class, Miss Beth announces that we're gonna have an exam, a qualifying exam. Let me be more specific, a timed qualifying an exam. And if you didn't make over 80%, you would be you would be removed from the class. But I was not worried. I was a little concerned for Trevor. <laughs> if anyone wasn't going to make it into the next level of first grade academia, it was going to be Trevor in his camouflage hunting pants. <laughs> so the day comes, and we take this test, and I whiz through it because I didn't know most of the answers. (laughs) So I go back through it and I read all the questions very slowly looking for context clues. And I wasn't sure why I didn't know these because I was so smart. Everyone said so. And uh, there was this one question I remember. It was, if you have six pirate ships in a lake and you remove two, how many do you have left? that it it occurred to me that this was a trick question, because it had said that it was in a lake, but pirate ships belong in the ocean. (laughs) So I take my number two pencil and I cross out lake, and I write ocean above it. And then I write a little note to my teacher (laughs) to the side, and then the answer comes to me, oh, four. (laughs) So I go through all the questions thinking that they were trick questions. (laughs) And I still... I still get done before all the other students. And I felt guilty because my friends would never think to question the questions. And I had come into this treasure chest of information and I could not speak up or share. So time's up, pencils down, we hand in our tests. And because there's only five of us, Miss Beth is able to you know, grade them really quickly and hand them back. And I'm holding my test and there's a flood of red ink all over it. There's huge X's through my little notes to her with the word, no, and an exclamation point beside it. I had got a 60%, the lowest grade out of all five of us. Even Trevor got an 82. <laughs> so the next day, around 1:45, when Miss Beth comes to get our Smarty Pants clan, I try to leave with them, hoping that everyone forgot that I, that I failed the test. And my normal teacher tells me to sit back down and that I will not be joining them anymore. In front of my friends in the gifted class and in front of those dummies in the first grade class. And I was embarrassed. I had to see my best friends leave every day at 1.45 after that. And I was embarrassed, I was ashamed, and I felt really stupid. I even tried to make excuses that I couldn't see the blackboard, that I couldn't see the test. And my parents, being good parents, take me to the eye doctor, and he tells them that I'm lying, that I have 20-20 vision. But, you know, at least in glasses, I would have looked smart. <laughs> and even worse than this, they put, <laughs> the school realized that I had a speech impediment. So they threw me into an even smaller room with no windows, with a speech therapist, and another kid that could barely form words. We spent hours on end, rolling our R's, learning the difference between wiver and river, and clenching our teeth together to make T sounds. T-t-t-t-t-t. I definitely felt stupid. So what do I do now? Asked my six-year-old self. That's around the time when everyone's asking, what are you gonna do? Like, what do you wanna be when you grow up? And I didn't know because I, I wanted to be smart and do something smart, and I didn't really know what that would be, <laughs> but I knew that it was no longer for me, I guess. <laughs> and to cheer me up, my parents took my little brother and I to opening day of Toy Story, Thanksgiving 1995. I remember sitting in between my parents with a bag of popcorn on my lap, And the first time that I saw Woody blink and come alive, I was floored. I was just amazed. This very normal toy, like I have toys at home. So it really threw me that something so normal could have a life. And here, all these toys are running around. Were my toys running around right now at home? I basically knew two things after I saw Toy Story. One, that I wanted to be an animator. And two, we needed to get home as soon as possible so I could catch my Care Bears jumping on my bed. (laughs) And I had always loved cartoons and to doodle and draw, but I had never really given it any merit. I always thought that, oh, we're reinforced to be smart, so that must be what you need to do. But after this, seeing all those credits of the people who worked on that movie, I knew that that was an option. So I really took that on as my identity. I grew up being known as the artsy girl, the girl who wanted to be an animator, worked for Disney. And what being an, animati- an animator entails is really looking at life and then recreating it in this like 2D space, in this 2D world. And I really love that. So I'm never gonna be able to, um, you know, make my own math problems on a college rule notebook or, fall, or get through a long, thick book without falling asleep on page two. But someone has to draw silly cats in top hats and monocles. <laughs> and it took seeing a cowboy doll push a space ranger action figure out the window and go through this incredible journey to learn that there was room in the world for both. Thank
1: you. That was Cassie Saladay. Cassie is the Los Angeles-based producer for the Story Collider. In addition, she's a writer, comic artist, and the love child of a poet and a parrot head. She's also an advocate for women in the arts and produces two podcasts, Ink and Paint Girls, and Jammiest Bits of Jam. She lives and works in California making cartoons. If you enjoyed today's story or fan of the podcast, please consider subscribing or writing us a review on iTunes. It helps us climb up the rankings, and that helps new listeners find the podcast. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Company Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is produced by me, Liz Neely, Aaron Barker, Ari Daniel, Christine Gentry, Shane Hanlon, Rosie Waldron, Cassie Soliday, and Nissa Greenberg, with help from Farah Maud, Ellie Chen, and Skylar Baer. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders, and the theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to the British Science Festival and to The Mint for hosting these shows, and to Highlighters for being yellow. Thanks for listening.